important thing is not how much money is spent. The important thing is what outcomes do we get on the ground. And there's been no lack of spending uh, over the last three or four decades. The spending has been an avalanche of dollars, but it has not been reflected in better outcomes for Indigenous people. G'day and welcome to episode four of series two of The Other Side Australia. First streamed on Friday, May the 5th, 2023. I'm Damien Curry, and this is your weekly news and commentary summary show where we bring you a shortcut view of the best bits of what's been said on the cultural and political issues that matter in Australia and abroad in the past week. That's to get you fully informed for the weekend and the week ahead. A quick catch up and a different take on the news of the week. And tonight you will definitely not agree with everything I say and that is exactly how it should be because on this show we're presenting the views that don't always get a lot of airtime. Welcome to ADH TV and welcome to The Other Side Australia. Well, they didn't want him there. They tried everything to keep him out, but former Prime Minister Tony Abbott was given the enormous privilege of being allowed to appear before the parliamentary committee that's examining the wording of the constitutional amendment that's being proposed to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament body. We absolutely have got to do the right thing to improve life expectancy, to improve employment, improve housing, reduce domestic violence, all those things. But I regret to say to the committee, uh, there is no persuasive evidence that the voice is going to do that. Um, the best thing to improve remote Australia, that all of us, I think, shy away from, the kids have got to go to school, the adults have got to go to work, uh, and the police have got to keep communities safe. Now, we look at what's happening in Alice Springs right now. Um, it's a policing problem. Uh, we have um, two extremely prominent voices, Indigenous voices, Marion Scrimgeour on one side of politics, Jacinta Price on the other side of politics. Their voices have been substantially ignored. Uh, they think the grog has got to go out, the police have got to go in. The problem is that politically correct thinking uh, says, oh, no, 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 no. This is not the result of poor personal choices. This is not the result of bad decisions by government in the last couple of decades. This is the result of intergenerational racism and colonialism. Well, to be honest, um, this is not the way forward to focus on these sorts of things. Tony Abbott spoke more sense in half an hour than most bureaucrats, politicians and grifters have spoken in a year on this issue. The committee is a Labor majority all-party committee that's examining the exact wording of the proposed constitutional change. Parliament votes in June on laws that will finalise both the wording of the constitutional amendment itself and the wording of the referendum question that we'll all be voting on late in the year. Labor's Sharon Claydon, the member for Newcastle and the Deputy Speaker of the House of Representatives, was not impressed with Mr Abbott's remarks. I accept that's your opinion. It's not shared by a number of people giving evidence to this committee. I also remember you articulating those same concerns in 2014 when you were in a position to do a lot about it. Um, and when you were uh, confronted with that choice, 
you chose um, to, in fact, cut money from Indigenous organisations on the ground in your first budget in 2004. I was in the Parliament with you at the time. I remember it well. Look, I, I, I reject the idea that money is the key thing here. Uh, money is important, but the important thing is not how much money is spent. The important thing is what outcomes do we get on the ground. And there's been no lack of spending uh, over the last three or four decades. The spending has been an avalanche of dollars but it has not been reflected in better outcomes for Indigenous people. The key thing is the attitude. And frankly, um, at the heart of the dysfunction right now is a sense of separatism uh, and this Indigenous voice, constitutionally entrenched Indigenous voice, is going to make this sense of separatism worse. Mr Abbott says what we should be doing and what we are doing is working to get more Indigenous voices into our existing two Houses of Parliament. Weirdly, Mr Abbott's request to appear at this committee was initially denied. A former Prime Minister unable to give testimony at a parliamentary committee hearing on something this important. Were they serious? And not only is he a former PM, but he became a special envoy on Indigenous Affairs in the Morrison government, so he knows a thing or two about it too. No wonder they did a last minute backflip and let him in. Mr Abbott said he hopes the committee will go back and recommend the whole voice process starts again. The way this process developed uh, from 2015 onwards, it has been very much the property uh, of Indigenous people, in particular uh, a certain Indigenous leadership. So uh, had it been done differently uh, with one or more constitutional conventions, uh, perhaps uh, with elected delegates as well as appointed delegates, I think not only would we have better teased out uh, all the impact of the particular proposal or any alternative proposals, but I think there would be a much greater sense of public ownership of this uh, because the last thing we want is uh, a referendum proposal that fails. Um, that would leave Australians embittered and divided. But I suspect that if this succeeds, it will likely also leave us embittered and divided because of the process which has got us to this point. Uh, so as I said, uh, uh, I would hope, I don't expect, but I would hope that the committee might recommend that we go back and start again. But if it's not prepared to do that, uh, I do hope that it will recommend some significant changes to the wording as I say, to um, ensure that it's not the High Court that in the end has the last word as opposed to the Australian people, um, and to ensure that this doesn't amount uh, to an effective veto on the workings of government. Support for The Voice is tanking fast as people learn the details and they realise it's not just a nice token gesture, but a serious constitutional change that could have massive implications for our political process for decades and cannot be overturned. Mr Abbott then had to face questioning from the Greens. Senator Dorinda Cox getting a lesson on what multiculturalism and unity actually means. On the aspect of culture, you've also mentioned this in your submission that's, that, in fact, this stems from a misguided view of the role of culture. Can you elaborate on that? Well, culture is obviously very important, but in the end, I would like to think that what unites us as Australians is more important than anything that divides us. 
and I would like to think that culture evolves uh, and it evolves in ways which will bring us over time uh, to better places. Now, obviously, um, Indigenous people uh, should respect uh, all of the things that have helped to make them who and what they are, but that's not simply uh, the Indigenous element. I mean, as Jacinta Price often says, you know, I am a proud uh, Walpiri Celtic Australian. Uh, there are many strands in culture, uh, and even for Indigenous people, I suspect that the Indigenous strand is but one. So just to clarify, Mr Abbott, you're saying that you don't believe First Nations people who have different cultures should be taken into consideration no, no, when we I'm are so, talking I'm about awards to Parliament, even though there are different faith groups and different yeah. um, uh, you know, refugee and immigrant groups that call yeah. Australia home yeah. that are in fact afforded that exact right. So are you saying that First Nations people don't deserve no, no, that? I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but if I may come back to you a little there, Senator, I mean, we are proposing a special voice for Indigenous people, but we're not proposing a special voice for migrants. We're not proposing a special voice for people based on religion. Um, I don't think anyone should have a special voice. I think everyone should have the same voice. And the voice of all of us is the National Parliament. That's why probably the single best thing that's happened for Indigenous people over the last decade or so is the very big increase in the numbers of Indigenous people in the Parliament. 11 separate Indigenous voices in the Parliament today, not because of quotas, not because of affirmative action, but because political parties and the people of Australia, in their wisdom, thought that Indigenous people had the qualities to represent all of us. And I applaud that and I thank God for it. And there you have it, folks. Game, set and match. Top-rating Melbourne radio show host Neil Mitchell has predicted that Victorian Premier Dan Andrews will be gone within six months. The Southern State's Premier, who governs with only 37% of the primary vote, is infamous for his heavy-handed policing and overreaction to COVID, which saw Melbourne become one of the world's most heavily locked down cities, despite high levels of vaccination and very few cases. 3AW Mornings host Neil Mitchell says reports in Melbourne's Herald Sun newspaper about the car accident with a cyclist in which the Premier was involved, combined with a number of reports into corruption allegations within his government, may be his final undoing. The point is made and suggested, however, by the solicitor particularly representing the victim. He says Mr Andrews' statement is completely inconsistent with what the ambulance officers say. Now, I know it's a long time ago, we've been through most of this, and I don't think it's going to resonate all that much with the public. So, oh, hang on, here we go. We're going to go back to the steps soon. But here we go again. The Premier's credibility is on the line. In the past week, that credibility has been challenged by the IBAC report, into dodgy dealings with the unions. It's been challenged by the state ombudsman. It's been challenged by the Premier's response to the allegations made against him and the renew allegations within the building industry at the moment. There are three more reports pending involving the Premier, reports from the Anti-Corruption Commission. Daniel Andrews has become a trouble magnet. I think it will get to the stage where he's had enough, so are oh, these 
don't people don't appreciate me. He's had enough, and so is the party. I repeat, and nobody agrees with me, I think you'll be gone in six months. October. For those outside Victoria, the state's anti-corruption commission, IBAC, released a report last month into the awarding of a million-dollar contract to a Labor-affiliated union. It was called the Operation Daintree Report, and it investigated how the state's health department awarded the Health Workers Union a $1.2 million staff training contract on the eve of the 2018 election without a competitive tender process. IBAC says this was because of significant pressure from ministerial staff, the Premier's office, and the Health Workers Union boss, Diana Asmar. The Commission says the union was given privileged access and favourable treatment, and that, quote, the combined effect of these failings and unethical conduct resulted in a contract that shouldn't have been entered into with the union and an outcome which was not in the public interest. But here's the rub. IBAC found that while ethical obligations were breached by the Premier's own department, and while this was an example of grey corruption, apparently corruption now comes in shades of bad, grey being kind of bad, you know, it wasn't technically illegal. Nobody technically broke the law. The King of Spin himself was in fine form when he was first confronted by reporters to account for his own department's unethical behaviour. There are 17 recommendations made in that important educational report. Uh, I will lead, uh, as the Chair of the Cabinet, a Cabinet process to consider those issues uh, and we will respond in due course. Uh, but we're grateful for that educational report and those 17 findings, those 17 recommendations, I should say. And uh, we will uh, get on with that work and, uh, and update you. Educational. Educational report. So <laughs> let me explain the PR trick here. When you've got a crisis of management on your hands, which is what this is, you position yourself as not the cause of the problem, but the solution to it. And that's exactly what Andrews does in this news conference. He starts by distancing himself from the problem. I'd like to thank IBAC for these 17 findings, uh, I mean recommendations. And then he pivots to, it's my job to ensure we take these educational findings and lead a process to learn from them. So you go from being the bad guy Joker to the hero Batman in one sentence. Fortunately, like most PR tricks of its kind, it only works a couple of times before even the dopiest citizens will wake up and start asking questions. Even Victoria's tame pro-Labor parliamentary press gallery. Watch for the same pattern in this next soundbite. I do want to make a couple of points. There are no findings against uh, anyone in this uh, report. Uh, it, is, it is an educational report, and they're not my words. That's the, uh, the way in which IBAC themselves have uh, described this. Uh, but the recommendations do go to a number of serious matters, important matters, and we will give proper consideration as part of a proper cabinet government process uh, to each of those. Uh, the uh, staff members that are referred to in this report do not work for the government anymore and have not worked for the government for years. Uh, and of course, as you well know, the two ministers who are referenced in the report are not even members of the parliament any longer. So uh, obviously uh, I am accountable and fundamentally responsible for uh, driving a process 
to consider those 17 recommendations, to look at them very carefully, uh, to potentially further engage with IBAC to seek their advice uh, and then to respond uh, once that work has been done. Uh, this matter has not been to Cabinet. It was not possible for this to go to Cabinet and I think that uh, given the educational elements of this, uh, it's not about taking action immediately, it's not about necessarily responding to uh, calls for action and findings that have been made against anybody. There are no findings against anyone in this uh, report. Uh, I think we do have the time to get this right and we should. And uh, I think there are also some issues in the report that are perhaps a little bit out of date. There are some things that have already happened, some processes that are live and are on foot. Uh, but again, we will do that work uh, and we'll report progress to you once that work is finished. And on and on and on it went. He's kind of good at the PR game in one way. This is the fourth known IBAC probe in which Premier Dan Andrews has been interviewed. His, Mr. His whole Mr. Reasonable shtick, the face to the public, can only cover up the extraordinary number of internal failings for so long. And for the sake of the 52% majority of Victorians who did not vote Labor or Green at last year's state election, we sure hope Neil Mitchell's prediction is right. We're going to talk economics for a bit, but you'll get a cat video afterwards as a reward, so stick with me. I mean it. The federal budget will be delivered Tuesday night. The federal government costs us about $650 billion a year. Isn't it worth it? And Tuesday, we will find out whether that number will rise, probably will, and exactly how that money will be spent. It's your money after all. It's no secret that governments, federal and state, have been borrowing up big in recent years. We now have combined government debt well over a trillion dollars in Australia. Interest rates are rising, so it's costing more and more to service the debt. The only way to pay the bill is to cut back the size of our bloated governments, which Labor will never do, or tax us more. But here's the thing. Without actually formally changing any tax rates, they are taxing us more, a lot more. Because of inflation and wage rises, and the fact that they haven't changed the tax scale for 15 years, it's been revealed this week that on average, Aussies are paying 15% more tax across all levels of government than a year ago. In Queensland, it's actually 18%, and in Victoria, it's a whopping 24% increase. And who's feeling it the most? Low-income Australian families. So it's really time to readjust those income tax brackets and lift the threshold for each income level. There's been a $200 billion windfall from taxes overall, and this could mean, amazingly, that we might see a budget surplus on Tuesday night, although the Prime Minister and Treasurer are not promising anything. And I reckon they will find a way to spend every last dollar. This windfall has more to do with luck than any good management. A lot of it has come from royalties and taxes on our gas and coal exports. Don't tell the Greens. But obviously that's not going, that's not going to last for the long term, right? So China is also scrapping its COVID zero policy and that helped support our iron ore and other exports, which also increase the government's tax take. A few things that we know are going to be in the budget following the national cabinet meeting with the premiers and various other announcements in the past week. 
More than a quarter of a million frontline aged care staff will get a 15% pay rise in a massive $11 billion package. It's probably not a bad way to spend it. There'll be lots and lots of cost of living breaks to cushion the blow of inflation caused by decades of pretty bad governing. $2.2 billion is going to be spent on strengthening primary healthcare and Medicare with money for chemists to do more primary care and take the pressure off GPs and emergency departments. There'll be more money to the states to hire more nurses. Reforms to the NDIS will require some funding, but they'll uh, stop that very important scheme from being abused or, or blowing out on its budget too much. And we could expect changes to help encourage people to build more affordable housing and increase supply. Rein in those uh, property prices and try to bring down rents a little bit. Cigarette tax will be going up a lot, a lot. good time to uh, quit smoking. And big infrastructure projects will be reviewed to make sure that they are delivering value and on budget. On the other side, interviews this Tuesday night at 6 p.m. I'll be joined by the head of the policy and economic think tank, the Australian Institute of Progress. Graham Young will be here for a special interview about the budget that'll be a little bit different. Instead of just talking about the 2023 budget itself and what might be in it, we'll be discussing what a budget is, how it works, and some of the philosophical and economic ideas about how governments should operate and spend. I'm looking forward to learning a lot, so do join us. The Other Side Interviews, it's our weekly interview show and it streams on ADH-TV first every Tuesday night at 6 and is available on demand after. And that'll be right before the budget is actually handed down at 7.30. As I said, it's on demand anytime after, also on all good podcast platforms. Don't forget ADH-TV, you can watch by downloading the app on your smartphone or your smart TV or just jumping onto the web and putting adh.tv in and you can start watching uh, pretty much straight away. Uh, and don't forget our podcast platforms too. Well, the video of the week goes to the pop star Doja Cat, who showed up at this week's fashion event of the year, the Met Gala in New York, as a cat and conducted what I think was one of the most meaningful, deep and intelligent interviews I've seen come out of America's entertainment, music and fashion industry in years. Okay, so tell me all about this. Wow. I mean, who, wait, so who made it? Wow. Wow. Okay, so something a little different. So what was your inspiration for tonight? Be honest with me and go into detail. So what are you excited to see in there today? Wow. Is it your first Met? Wow. I'll see you in there. Wow. <laughs> You're watching or listening to episode four of season two of The Other Side Australia. First streamed Friday, May 5, 2023. I'm Damien Curry, and The Other Side is your weekly shortcut to the best news commentary from Australia and abroad. We're on ADH-TV. You can watch anytime on the web at ADH-TV, or even better, you can download the app on your phone. Don't forget, we've got Alan Jones every Tuesday and Wednesday night, Mark Stein every night at 5 p.m., Fred Paul most weeknights, Daisy Cousins, Alexandra Marshall, David Flint, Dave Pallow's Church and State Show, not to be missed, and Spectator TV, all on demand right here on ADH-TV, Australia's leading voice.
A young man in the ACT has narrowly escaped being sent to jail after a woman who took sex-enhancing drugs with him on a date and then went to bed with him later said he raped her. Thomas Earle was convicted of rape, but this week he was not jailed, but instead sentenced to a three-year intensive corrections order. The presiding judge was ACT Chief Justice Lucy McCallum, who said during sentencing that he had little or no chance of reoffending. In February, Earl was found guilty of rape and committing an act of indecency, but he was simultaneously acquitted of two counts of sexual intercourse without consent. He pleaded not guilty to all the charges. Radical feminists were left outraged by the decision not to jail the man, saying on social media that it was another example of women being denied justice. And the victim herself said she was devastated that Earl wasn't being sent to jail. The court heard that Earl met the woman at her house in December 2021, where they ate dinner, smoked some marijuana and inhaled amyl nitrate, a known sex enhancing drug. The victim said she woke later to find Earl's hands inside her underwear. She said she then became frozen and couldn't do anything with her body. The ABC reports that there were different accounts from the two about their movements in bed and how they were interpreted. In her judgment, the Chief Justice highlighted that she believed that in Earl's mind, the victim had consented. But she said he proceeded in a selfish way without turning his mind to consent. The result is tragic indeed, the judge said. Earl will have a conviction against him, be required to do 300 hours of community service and 20 hours of counselling. The woman involved, Emily Campbell Ross, said she was devastated by the result and described how she felt after the night in question in a victim impact statement. Okay, now let's compare that with how the ABC reported the same story. Under the headline, Canberra rapist Thomas Earle avoids jail time sentenced to 300 hours community service, the first paragraph reads, Convicted Canberra rapist Thomas Earle has avoided time in prison after he was sentenced to a three-year intensive corrections order, leaving his victim devastated. They then outlined the details of the case, leaving out for now the very important evidence about the drugs that the two shared and the fact that they were on a date. Then they told the victim's story. Earl's victim, Emily Campbell Ross, said she was devastated by the result. The women in the ACT were just told that if the right to their own body is removed, community service is a justified punishment, she said in a statement. The men of the ACT were just told that they can rape a woman and never see the inside of a prison cell. The justice system has once again failed women. I get the life sentence and Thomas merely gets a slap on the wrist, she said. The ABC story then goes on to explain Emily's trials after the event, saying she couldn't feel clean and some very graphic details about how it affected her afterwards. Now let's be clear, this is bloody awful stuff. It's awful for this young woman. And as it seems, the judge rightly noted in this case, awful for the young man involved because he had shown significant remorse for his misinterpretation of consent having been given. But why was the story presented this way by the ABC before it got to the evidence about the drugs? You have to scroll way down before finding a paragraph that says, quote, 
Earl met his victim on a night in December 2021 at her house where they ate dinner, smoked marijuana and inhaled jungle juice, also known as emyl nitrate. In journalism terms, we'd call that burying the lead. It seems like a rookie mistake and I simply can't understand why the ABC would have made it. Can you? A New South Wales government website, one of those really cool ones that spends our tax dollars giving kids advice on drugs, you know, for their health and safety, says, and I quote, emyl nitrite is also known as poppers. It and similar nitrites have been sold under many names, including Rush, Climax, Ram, Thrust, and Heart On, unquote. You learn something new from big government every day. Australia's new king is having his coronation, although you'd never really know it. No official celebration, no official commemoration, nothing. Why? Well, because we seem to be now in everything but name behaving like a de facto republic. The Australian elites have little regard for the monarchy or the concept of monarchy. And that may be okay. They have almost no regard for our British origins and that's definitely not okay. In fact, for a good 20 to 30 years now, they've been busy instilling a contempt in our youth for those origins, that our British heritage is something to be ashamed of. And when the elites decide it's time to move on, they don't worry about anything like actually asking the rest of us and having a referendum. They just act as if it's already happened. Now I can tolerate living in a country where my views might be in the minority, I'm used to that, but I can't stand living in one that behaves like an international hypocrite. We are supposed to be a federal parliamentary constitutional monarchy until a referendum decides otherwise. And some respect for that fact would be nice since we haven't had that vote yet. Anyway, I mean, what have the British ever done for us? You know, kind of reminds me of that Monty Python sketch from the life of Brian about the Roman Empire. Let us wipe the bastards. They take everything we had. And not just from us, from our fathers and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. You're right, Stan, don't labour the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Education. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really missed, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! Hilarious. So what have the British ever done for us colonials? Since school didn't provide most of us with this knowledge, including me, let's dive in for a little education on what it actually means to be a former British colony. So at least we fully understand what we're throwing away when we mock it and make fun of it as if it's just a quaint idea from the olden days. 
Australians actually did vote in a referendum on becoming a republic back in 1998, and we soundly rejected it. It seems the elites have forgotten that. Part of that process involved a costly and lengthy constitutional convention, a big meeting at Parliament House at which Aboriginal Liberal Senator Neville Bonner, I'll repeat that slowly because it might cause some woke viewers' heads to explode, Aboriginal Liberal Senator Neville Bonner, he was Australia's first Aboriginal parliamentarian, thank you Liberal Party, Q second lefty head explosion, he had this to say at the time. I have had the very good luck to have great wealth, to have been so well educated in your schools and universities. I ask you, what reason do you have now in 1998 to tell the indigenous people that we must accept what you have decided about our country again? Why are you doing this? You know that change you propose will now have no effect on the problems of my people, of the country. I plead with you, apply your great talents and your great wealth to overcome these. You have taught us one thing which we have learned, that in a democracy, democratic power must be limited, that in the Westminster system there must be an umpire, that he or she must be above politics. That solutions to problems, supply cries for example, must be handled responsibly, efficiently and swiftly. Republican is a vote of no confidence in the existing system. But you forget you have taught us to love, honour and respect that system. As I said, I have a heavy heart. I ask you, what are you doing? Are you not already divided enough on other issues, real issues, real problems? Why are you diverting attention from these issues? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Liberal Senator Neville Bonner back in 1998 at the Constitutional Convention with some wise words. And it seems like we haven't learned too much in 25 years. From the bottom of my heart, I pray you, stop this senseless division let us work together on the real issues. Let us solve those problems which haunt my people. The problem of land, of health, unemployment, of the despair and hopelessness which leads even to suicide. Let us unite this, unite this country, not divide it ever. So, an Indigenous Senator 25 years ago appreciated the value of British democracy and its monarchy and Australia having the benefit of its European heritage. Yet most of our modern elites think the King is just an irrelevancy and there's no need to ask the rest of us what we think. An article for Stanford University's Hoover Institute points out that these days in most circles, quote, Colonialism is considered to be a sad episode in history where dominant economic powers with sophisticated military might subjugated less developed, more vulnerable societies, turned them into colonies, imposed foreign languages and organizations on them and exploited local natural resources and labor. 
But the article says this is a naive view. Researchers found that there were big advantages from colonization as well, especially those within the British Empire. English institutions provided a positive basis for economic growth in the colonies that has persisted to today. And the reason the Brits outdid all the other colonies, because it had very clear and easy to understand property rights to land and a rule of law that could enforce those rights fairly. In another study by Gary Lieberkamp of the Hoover Institute, they found that, quote, for any society to become rich, a precondition is that its land must be used productively and that land markets must emerge. They write that the history of that idea goes all the way back to the Romans. Monty Python were right. <laughs> Quote, in territories conquered by Rome, land was organized into grids to support higher agricultural productivity and presumably exchange. But with the fall of Rome, this changed. And during the dark ages that followed, property rights to land were insecure and haphazardly defined. Just that little bit of insecurity meant that people wouldn't bother working on the land to make it more productive or trading as much. And that had dire economic implications. And that's just one example. One of many reasons involving English institutions such as the common law, contract enforcement, banking and trading practices, all the stuff that we all take for granted in Australia as if it just fell from the sky onto Uluru one day by accident. And if you add to that all the European traditions that we got through the British and other European immigrants, all that Roman Empire stuff, and the answer to the question, what have the Romans ever done for us, becomes a lot clearer. A lot. Okay, Damo, thanks for the history lesson, mate, but what the hell has that got to do with Australia in 2023? Well, for one, it means we might want to not be so smug and arrogant when we toss aside thousands of years of European history with cheap catchphrases like evil colonizers. And we might want to have some respect and be a little more conservative and a little less progressive so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like the fine Australian senator from the good state of Victoria. I sit in that parliament and every day they say that they are sovereign. The, colo the colonial system and the colonizers say they are sovereign. You don't go to someone else's country and say that you're sovereign. Secondly, have you heard of the Mabo and Wick decisions on native title and land rights? These court rulings from the 1990s awarded significant shared rights to Aboriginal people to land that they make a claim on. Governments then had to step in and make laws through the authority of Parliament, that's the House of the People, over the courts to ensure that existing mining and farming rights were protected. This was so as not to let uncertainty about their property rights stop any of the owners from going ahead with important projects like they did under the Romans, leading themselves into the Dark Ages. So Parliament, representing the will of us, the people, was able to override the High Court rulings, or at least make them more workable in practice, as it should be. OK, Damo, that's nice. But again, what the heck has that got to do with 2023 Australia? Well. <laughs> 
There's this little referendum on an Aboriginal voice to Parliament being asserted into our Constitution, and it will be an entirely new chapter of the Constitution, not just a few lines added in. Have you wondered to yourself why they're so hell-bent on changing the Constitution? Why can't they just set up a, another ATSIC or Aboriginal advisory body and make sure that it operates well and doesn't have to be shut down like ATSIC did? Why can't we make ordinary laws to enshrine an Aboriginal advisory body? Why do we need to change the Constitution? Because that changes everything. Parliament cannot pass laws, meaning we the people can't pass laws over things like land rights if those laws breach the Constitution. And the body that decides on whether laws breach the Constitution is the High Court of Australia. And that's why this is so troubling, as University of Queensland Professor James Allen explained a couple of weeks ago in our Tuesday night show, The Other Side Interviews. It's very important that people understand uh, how, how large the changes being suggested are. It will, it'll, it will have, in my view, very bad consequences if this goes through. What a written constitution does is it locks things in. So it makes it harder than just passing a statute to change. If you write that into the constitution, it's almost impossible to change. So some people will be born and they'll have the right to pick people who sit on this voice body the judges will have all these new tools to override the elected legislature. It'll be harder to make laws. Anyone who thinks this is going to lead to unity is bonkers. It's going to be divisive. Just look across at New Zealand. The actual right. wording that's been proposed is that this uh, voice body, nobody knows how it's going to be chosen. Not, that's, you know, you get the details later. Uh, it will, and the wording is may make representations to, to Parliament and the executive on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Islander straight peoples. So may make representations. Uh, there's lots of scope for the High Court to turn that into a constitutional right to be consulted. Uh, not just Parliament, but every executive decision so that's every bureaucratic body uh you can imagine the rent right. seeking that's going to happen you can imagine the sort of sclerotic ability uh my guess and you know john o'sullivan had a law that said every body in the world that's not explicitly right wing over time becomes left wing uh, the activist ca class will capture this body and i think one of the reasons labor's not too worried about this is it's a bit like the senate and if you want to be a big spending government just spend like crazy. You never have a problem getting through the Senate because no. these little independents just go, oh yeah, more money for... If you want to cut back on the budget and, and do something really restrained, it's very difficult to get that through the Senate. Well, it's going to be like that on steroids with this voice body. Uh, it, it's sort of baseline set of views will be sort of right there with the Green Party. And so when Labour gets in, they won't really have too much problem getting their more spending, more identity politics laws through the, you know, the, they'll line up with the voice body. Anything that a, a Conservative Party wants to do, well, the voice body isn't going to like it. Now, they don't have a veto, but they, you know, they can slow things down considerably. And who knows the extent to which the High Court will... Uh, take this may make representations, turn it into a constitutional right to be consulted, how long do they have to be consulted? And you can imagine how sclerotic this is going to become. Professor James Allen on our Tuesday night show, The Other Side Interviews, and that whole interview is available on demand on ADH TV and all our podcast platforms. A recent debate on Channel 7's Sunrise show between ADH TV's very own Professor David Flint 
representing Australians for a constitutional monarchy, and Craig Fozzie Foster from the Australian Republican movement, shed a bit more light on how different Aussies view our relationship with the King. Well, the image of Queen Elizabeth is set to be removed from Australia's $5 note, but the late monarch won't be replaced by King Charles. Instead, the Reserve Bank will introduce a new design that honours the culture and history of the first Australians. The change is expected to take a number of years, with the RBA planning to consult with Indigenous Australians on what the new note will look like. Craig, let's start with you. Uh, why do you say this was a good decision by the RBA? Oh, it was a wonderful decision. I think, uh, you know, yesterday, uh, millions of Australians like me felt a real deep sense of pride that we're finally starting to recognise, you know, our 65,000 years of history. Uh, it acknowledges this path that we're walking with First Nations um, and, and placing the monarchy into its now historical context. Now historical context? Oh, I'm sorry, Foz, was there a referendum that I missed? I mean, if you want to have one, that's fine, but until then, uh, the monarchy isn't historical. We have this thing called a constitution and a democracy. So you don't just uh, you know, get to wake up and decide that we're a republic, mate. And when did the Republican movement become all about indigenous issues? It's just one big woke soup for, for Fozzie. I've got to say, I wanted uh, uh, the deputy chair of the ARM, Anova Paris, to be here this morning because it's appropriate for a First Nations person to be talking about this and the impact on our First Nations community and how they feel. Uh, sadly, she couldn't make it this morning, so you have to do with me. David, how do you feel about the King and the Queen, the late Queen, being snubbed? Well, I think it's not really the monarchs being snubbed, it's the Australian people because this is a process. Now, people are entitled to debate this issue. They're entitled to raise this, and I have no objection to that. That's democracy. That's all in order. But we have a process. We will become a republic first, and then we remove the king from the official positions. We've had a very long tradition that in the lowest denomination note, and bank notes, of course, uh, becoming almost irrelevant. Exactly. But, but uh, to take the king away from that is a deliberate snub. It's an indication to his supporters that he's going ahead with the Republic. He knows full well he won't be going away because the polls are so bad that you wouldn't put up a referendum. They've, they've got to really wait until they can persuade the people that they have a model and that they should go ahead with that and that can be tested. But we haven't reached that point. Is that the case, Craig? Do you not maybe have the support that you think you have? Look, I think that it's disrespectful of First Nations people, actually. Oh, OK. Never mind the other 25 million of us. Craig the Foz spent the next minute or so talking about First Nations people and symbolism and the importance of it, seemingly forgetting that this was a debate about whether the King should be on our $5 note and making it pretty clear that he's never seen a $50 note. You know, the one that has the uh, Aboriginal inventor and author David Uniapon on it. But carry on, mate. And if we're walking this path with First Nations, which we are, uh, then, uh, you know, these ties, these formal ties with the monarchy and this symbolism to, you know, a new king who, let's face it, very few in Australia feel any connection or association with yeah. or emotional ties to, it's no longer reconcilable. In fact, it's indefensible. Craig, uh, I mean, uh, David, has... I can understand Craig, the mistake. Has Craig, has, <laughs> I'm flattered. Has Craig got a point, though? Um, you know, the Queen was so popular. Is this the beginning of the end for King Charles?
criminals in this country. Not in thing. the slightest. The, 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 putting the alternative as, as though you've got to have either the monarch or the indigenous people on the back notices, it's not really a fair comparison. It is not a question of having our constitutional system continue or uh, acknowledging the indigenous people. It's not that choice at all. No, it's not. But the PR trick of the voice and republic crowd is to mush it all up together as they gently shove it down our throats. As a centre-right old-fashioned classical liberal in Australia, it's agony watching your team lose election after election. It's more agonising watching them losing because they keep making the same mistake, standing for nothing and trying to be all things to all people, responding to market research and polling instead of leading the debate and setting the agenda. Of course, I'm talking about the Liberal Party. But the very worst thing of all is having to listen to people who don't listen, the losers, complaining after they've lost. They complain that they lost for every reason under the sun than that they stuffed it up. We haven't had to hear the post-election therapy sessions of New South Wales ex-premier Dominic Perrottet yet, but we were treated this week to the ex-Victorian Liberal leader Matthew Guy's psychiatric session with Melbourne Radio 3AW's Neil Mitchell. Faceless leakers of the Liberal Party, and there's a number of them, these faceless leakers of the Liberal Party who profit from gossiping, whether it's from themselves personally through uh, their work or their reputation, and there's two in particular, but there's a number of others. And what you see are these people, Neil, who uh, offer themselves predominantly to newspapers, but also to you know, like ABC, who are regular haters of the Liberal Party, uh, who will just gossip. And that gossiping is usually talking the Liberal Party down. So people on our side who talk us down, talk our parliamentary parties down, talk the brand down, talk us down at every opportunity. Of course, you know, people like the ABC and those love it because they run these people. Um, sometimes they're on the record, most of the time they're off. But we'll, we need to expunge these faceless these faceless leakers of the Liberal Party because they do damage to the party, thinking they're trying to um, advance themselves and they do not. Let's remember that these critics and leakers wouldn't be able to criticise or leak if there was strong leadership and less to criticise or leak about. Something that Neil Mitchell was quick to point out. There's nothing wrong with criticism from within the party, and you, you deserve criticism at times. No, Is it more than that? No, you don't see this in the Labor Party. This kind of ill discipline happens from these faceless leakers in the Liberal Party, and there's a couple of them, as I said, two very prominent and a number of others beyond that. Names? No, no, not today. Leakers of internal gossip. What exactly is Matthew Guy doing right now, if not that, himself? So why did you lose, Matt? What, what was it? I'll let you be the judge of that. There's lots of different things. Was it you? No, I don't think it was that at all. I think... People didn't like it? Well, the state president doesn't like me. Go and ask him. But well, he blamed you, didn't he? Well, I blame him as part of that. Uh, as, and I've been pretty forthright about that. I think, he's, I think his conduct was woeful. And I think he's been a woeful state president. And I think he should go. I've been on the record saying that. And I'd continue doing that. In what way was he woeful? Well, he, um, uh, he was not a help to the campaign. He was a hindrance to the campaign. But these people don't want you to lose, do they? Uh, they are not in it. I, I question whether some of these faceless leakers, not Greg, but some of the faceless leakers of the party want the party ever to win. They, they actually do better in terms of uh, their, their briefing to the media by us not winning. And that's why people need to stop feeding them. 
And he blamed Sky News Peter Credlin. What about Peter Credlin? She didn't work for the Labor Party. She had a very senior position within the Abbott government. Oh, I don't want to personally attack her, but, you know, she's no friend of mine, quite obviously. Why? Doesn't, did she hurt you? Well, you know, I was, I, I was a supporter of Malcolm Turnbull and she was a the chief staff of Tony Abbott. <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, it's like asking a South Australian to barrack for, uh, for Collingwood, isn't it? Supporter of Malcolm Turnbull. You wouldn't admit to that now, would you? Well, no, I, absolutely I would. Absolutely He's I would. He's turned on the Liberal Party. Look, you know, I, I don't like what Malcolm says in parts about the Liberal Party, but, you know, um, you know I'm not going to be so disloyal as to turn on someone like that. It's a weird kind of logic, isn't it? The interview didn't really get deeply into policy mistakes or policy substance, but I do sympathise with Matthew Guy on one point. He said that when he tried to speak about policy in the election campaign, the TV news and the print media, wielding significant pro-Labor party bias and only interested in stories about personality that would titillate viewers, simply were not interested in policy. Most of our news media just doesn't cover stuff in depth. Why? Because of us. We won't listen and think, and we want to be entertained all the time rather than informed. That has got to change, and that is on all of us. But as we said, Guy blamed everyone but himself, his poor policies or his poor performance. He blamed both Sky News and the ABC. That's a real achievement. And in the end, you just got to say, if you can't beat Dan Andrews, who only got 37% of the vote and limped over the line with the help of the Greens, who can you beat? I want to be clear that the comments that I'm going to make now do not relate to the rape case that we were talking about earlier in the show specifically. They relate to a general cultural problem that I think we have in Australia right now that we really need to not be too afraid to talk about. But most men are. I'm a bit afraid to be honest, but we just have to talk about it. We have to have the conversation in public and out loud that many men are having in private with other men. The crime of rape is so serious that a lot of men, me included, believe it should be nearly a capital offence. But this modern trend of radical left-wing feminists I'd call them fake feminists, actually, because they're driven more by sheer hate for men than any love or care for women. This trend of them turning date-related sex crime cases, and sometimes just accusations and allegations, into examples of justice-failing women has simply got to stop. Women cannot be both strong, capable human beings and simultaneously be helpless victims in every situation involving men and sex. That is a logical contradiction, and it's one of the lies of radical feminism. We simply must also consider the accused men. There seems to be compassion and kindness and sympathy in our society for everyone these days, except heterosexual males. Everyone is allowed to be proud of their sexuality and march that pride down the street and bring their whole selves to work, including their sexuality, except straight men. Our sexuality is somehow always disgusting in the minds of the modern radical feminist. It is a tragedy for anybody involved in a date situation where they don't feel that they'd given consent to sex. Yes, men must more actively seek consent and women must more actively and explicitly give or deny it. 
but a person's adult conscious consenting decisions to invite someone on a date then drink heavily or take drugs with them and get into bed with them or go home drunk with them after a work function or text them and ask them to come over for sex surely implies some degree of involvement in giving signals that lead to any sex that follows. And when humans so often misconstrue signals that we get from others, especially in the sphere of love and sex, how can any legal system ever untangle what happened between the sheets or on a couch or who agreed to what when? Now, some of you may say that we're getting close to victim blaming here. But the concept of avoiding any victim blaming doesn't extend to completely removing any person's obligation to behave as a responsible adult to avoid possible harmful sex and misinterpretation of consent to the same extent that the other adult involved has that obligation. And there is a limit that must be protected to how much policing of private bedroom activity our criminal justice system can and should be doing. There is a limit to what access the police and lawyers and governments should have to our bedsheets. Another concern I have, apart from what this is doing to sexual norms in our culture and the impact this is having on young men and older men and increasing rates of depression and suicide, and this should be the concern of all men who love and care for women, is what date rape cases do to the policing of genuine cases of serious, violent, clearly forced rape that occurs outside a date environment. If we're gonna get anywhere in all of this, we've gotta be able to have an adult public conversation about it without being shouted down. We need to eliminate the horrible misandry that's crept into some parts of Australian culture this century. The sexist hatred of men purely for being men is palpable among women of a certain political persuasion in this country. And it isn't pretty when it leads to claims that justice wasn't appropriately served every time a man is acquitted for a sex crime or convicted, but perhaps uh, you know the penalties are reduced because of the circumstances. It's really Salem witch hunt stuff. It's mob rule. I'm no prude. But one answer to all of this horrible mess might be that we begin as a culture to start treating sex itself with more reverence. It's not who is sleeping with who that conservatives should be worried about. It's how we treat sex as an expression of love and intimacy rather than a casual mechanical act that it's too often portrayed as by the entertainment industry these days. And that's not something government should be regulating perhaps, but it's something we as individual adults should be thinking about especially as we raise our teenagers. And on that note, I'll leave you for the week. I told you you wouldn't agree with everything I said this week, and nor should you. Uh, it's just fun to think of things and, and have these uh, ideas bouncing around, as we should all, all be able to do. I saw a fantastic meme this week that said, we don't have to agree, but we can still be friends. We'll catch you uh, next Friday for The Other Side Australia. And also on Tuesday night, remember The Other Side interviews. This week, I'll be speaking with Graham Young, the executive director of the political and economic think tank, the Australian Institute of Progress, about how federal budgets work and all things economic in plain English. So if you want a good lesson in what we should all know about where our taxes go and how they get used, make sure you join us for that one. Streaming on Tuesday night here on ADH TV at 6 p.m. and available on demand at any time thereafter, as always. 
And uh, this show, The Other Side Australia, your weekly shortcut summary of the news and commentary of the week, streams every Friday night at 8pm, then also available on demand after. So you're fully clued up for the weekend on the news of the week and you can sound really smart at all those social events. So have a great week and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.